Welcome everyone to the episode 107 of the Cardano Effect podcast. We have Fernando Gutierrez. He is the CMO of the Dash Core Group. And we also have Ryan Taylor. He is the CEO of the Dash Core Group. We're going to get right into the mix of things. Rick, how are you doing this morning? What's going on? What's happening? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm very happy to have these two guests on today. Very relevant to Cardano. And I would like to give a shout out to the Cardano Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you very much, Cardano Foundation, for helping bring great content to the Cardano community. And I would also like to remind viewers this podcast is available on all audio streaming platforms. And recently, we've added Amazon Music as well. So with that said and out of the way, we're going to get right into governance, which is very relevant to Cardano. We have two experts from Dash who are experts on on governance. Dash has been uh working on governance for a very long period of time. And even some of Cardano's early papers has referenced Dash uh, for the governance model. So we're very grateful to have you two gentlemen on today. Uh, thank you for being here. And Fernando, where are you calling in from? You know, tell us real quick and we'll get right into uh, how governance works. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling from Switzerland, a village near Lausanne. All right, thank you. And Ryan? Yes, I'm uh, calling in from Scottsdale, Arizona where Dash Core Group is headquartered. All right. And thank you for being here. So getting right into the governance, it's, Cardano, it's very early on. Um, we're launching on Project Catalyst, mechanisms for governance and being able to vote on chain. So what was it like in the early stages of Dash when you guys first brought governance online? Were there any pitfalls you ran into? Were there any hazards? Uh, what, kind of, what kind of lessons learned can we get from you guys? Well, uh, I can give a little bit of background, and I'm sure we both have some perspective on what some of the hazards or pitfalls were early on, because uh, both Fernando and I were part of the team at that point in time. Dash launched in January of 2014, so it's one of the older cryptocurrencies. And really very early on, we realized that donations from the community were not likely to be an effective way of of raising funds for the, the project. And I think a number of people had an idea simultaneously <laughs> that you know a portion of the block reward should be going towards things other than mining and infrastructure. Dash was really the first to recognize that there's more than one need to running and operating one of these networks. Previously, 100% of all block rewards were going towards um, mining in, in almost every coin that existed at the time. And Dash was the first to recognize, well, you actually need servers that are relaying these messages around and, and uh, connecting with the users and, and so on. And so Dash was the first to kind of break out its block reward. But the idea very quickly morphed into, well, what else is needed? We need developers, we need legal work, we need business development, we need marketing, we need all of these things to be an effective network. And so how do you do that? And that was the genesis for, well, we, we need a way to be able to do that in a decentralized way, in a way that the network itself decides how that is allocated. And so it was really needs-based that we needed a governance system in order to facilitate a much more flexible block reward allocation towards many different projects. And so that, that was kind of the reason that, that we pursued it. 
And by mid-2015, we had a pretty rudimentary system uh, that launched onto mainnet. Basically, the way that it works is that any masternode operator on Dash's network is able to vote on a set of proposals. Anyone is able to submit a proposal to the network for a minimal fee. And if a proposal passes a certain threshold, it is eligible to be paid as part of a monthly cycle. And uh, there's some nuances there uh, that we could get into, but I'll skip over them for now. But basically, there's a budgeted amount. The budget pays out to the highest ranking proposals first. And when it's full, no more proposals are paid. And Dash is actually, as a result of this, the oldest operating DAO in existence. Uh, it actually predated the DAO, which was launched in 2016, uh, which, of course, didn't go terribly well. We've gone through some minor changes since then, but that system has largely remained unchanged since 2015, and it's been pretty effective. There are some challenges with it, a few of which is it doesn't adjust the threshold that's required based on voter participation. And so we're seeing changes in that. And we can talk about some of the reasons why voter participation has dropped. But we do recognize that kind of maintaining a high level of voter participation is critical for the system to function. I'd say a second challenge is early on, we, we did have some technical challenges. There was actually a month in which a budget didn't pay. Luckily, that was very early on in 2015. We identified the issue and fixed it. But you do run into technical, you know, bugs. Whenever you're making changes to your governance system, you're going to run into bugs. And so it's something that you really, it, it should be a very high bar for making changes. Um, you really need to have good justification for changing a system because it can introduce bugs in these systems. And I'd say uh, a third challenge that we've run into and that we're, we're going through a process to uh, fix now is it really was quite inflexible. I think that it's wise to, to build in a certain level of flexibility into the system so that it can adjust to different market conditions. So those are, you know, that's some of the history there and, and where this whole idea came from for Dash and some of the early, you know, issues that we've run into with it. But it's been really effective. I think that the difference between a governance system that operates at a level of five versus one that operates at seven or 10 isn't that great. Like the, the value that's created is in even having the basics right. And uh, I think a lot of people lose track of that. They overemphasize getting governance per perfect. I've actually seen coins that launch that claim to be governance tokens. And I think they've completely lost sight of what the purpose of governance is. No coin's purpose is governance. Governance is something you need to have a coin that does something else well. But no company launches and says, we've got the purpose of our company is to have the best corporate governance possible. Buy our stock. 
it, it makes no sense. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I think you need something there, but I don't think you have to overinvest in it. Okay. Uh, Fernando, I'm sure you have some yeah, uh, unique perspectives on the early days. Yeah, there's an, another challenge we had back then uh, that Ryan has not mentioned is that since we didn't launch governance from the beginning and it was something we implemented in 2015, we needed to convince everyone in the network that this was the right thing to do because the money going to, the, to our treasury that funds the proposal comes from somewhere else. In our case, master node rewards and minor rewards. And we had gone through that same process before in 2014 when DAS introduced masternodes because in the beginning, all the block reward went to miners and then we introduced masternodes who would get part of the block reward. And then we would introduce the treasury who would also get part of the block reward. So um, that was a process of convincing and talking to the network actors, mostly the miners, uh, and because we had to go through a lot of, uh, we went through a, lot, a few hard forks to get where we are now. And it's something to uh, also realize that the project didn't split. Everyone kept on, on the same side of the fork to end up where we are now. And that was because we had also miners that understood the need for both changes and then also, also master owners that understood that we, could, we needed to fund the development of the project. So that's... Uh, that dialogue and that conversation, ha having it going on, it's really, really important. Yeah, as Ryan said, it's been great uh, five uh, years already. And now we are going to start implementing some changes. But uh, as long as you have the basics right, it, it will take you a long way. And, and then you can learn and optimize. Okay. That's good news. That's good to hear. And uh, congratulations on not having it fork or split the community. That must have been, well, that was a success. So that's good to hear. Philippe, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. Yes, yes. I have, I have a quick question. So from what I understand about Dash, master nodes are integral in that voting process. So how, as a cryptocurrency, are you able to prevent collusion or coercion between master node operators that may have a large influence or may have a great amount of dash, how do you mitigate the risk of just large blocks of people or masternodes voting in tandem and not necessarily representing the will of the dash community, the greater dash community? Well, it, it works a lot like a shareholder system. The more masternodes you operate, the more votes you get. And it's really difficult to try to uh, have one person, one vote within a network because no one goes through KYC, right? You, you could easily spoof yourself very easily and, and create many identities on the network. So it's really a, a, a fair way of distributing the votes. As far as collusion, the answer is there is nothing that could stop masternodes from colluding with one another in a way that was in their best interest. And, you know, that issue was one of the, the worries in introducing a governance system, but we really haven't seen any evidence of it. I mean, yes, the masternodes have a channel in Discord where they all discuss the proposals and argue with one another and, 
and debate and, and tell people how they're going to vote and ask people to vote the way that they're voting. But as far as, you know, the formation of a voting block, that's a really difficult thing to do. And the only way that's going to happen is if people's interests are aligned anyway. And so uh, th this is an issue that I feel would have cropped up in corporate structures or some other similar shareholder-like structures. And in the real world, that just doesn't happen. I don't understand why any one masternode would collude with others on something they disagreed with anyway. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, if a proposal is going to pass, it's going to pass on its merits. And no masternode is going to vote for something that they don't actually support because they're part of some colluding group of masternodes. That's against their own best interest. And so if you just rely on people acting in their own best interest and your system depends on it, it's a pretty safe assumption to make. Also, I think it's important to consider, maybe for those who are not really familiar with this, masternode owners have to collateralize a thousand Dash in order to have a masternode. So they are pre-invested in Dash. So usually their interest will be the best, they will have in mind the best interest of the network. Masternode owners uh, need to keep their Dash. It's like you guys are looking into governance base and staking. You are not going to vote against your own investment. You are going to vote what's best for your investment. So the incentives are pre-aligned. Also, the masternode layer is very big and pretty decentralized. We have around 5,000 masternodes. And I don't think, and there's no huge holders of masternodes. Yeah. So um, in order to control that layer, you would need to control something, not a crazy number of coins. Yeah, so um, just to give you an idea of the numbers, there's around 5,000 masternodes, each collateralizing about 1,000 Dash. So that's about $70,000 a piece. I would estimate that the largest holder of Dash has somewhere between 100 to 200 masternodes. And in order for a proposal to pass, it has to have a minimum of 10% net votes. What that means is yes votes minus no votes. And so 10% of 5,000 is about 500. In order to pass any proposal, it has to have 500 yes votes and no no votes. And so even if a particular masternode owner had 500,000 dash, which is a huge portion of the total supply, even then they would have a hard time forcing a proposal through that the rest of the network doesn't support because they would vote no on it. And so it, it's, you have to have an overwhelming portion of the dash and circulating supply in order to dominate the network, at which point you have no incentive to attack it. So it's not pollution, it's majority. Okay. Yeah. And you know, this is really insightful to hear from you guys, because with Cardano not precisely voting yet, um, the conversation comes up once in a while that says, you know, because everybody holding stake in Cardano can vote, not just pool operators, which I would compare to masternodes, like they have a similar role to maintain the infrastructure. But, you know, since all stakeholders can vote, sometimes the conversation comes up that 
well, someone has more stake than I do, therefore their vote counts more, therefore it's not fair, or whoever has more stake, you know, gets the majority of the vote. Um, that has come up. I think it's a fair concern, but, you know, that needs to be addressed, discussed, and communicated, and this is exactly the kind of conversation that can help allay people's fears of, you know, what if someone votes against my best interest because it's different than their best interest? But I guess in the end, the key is, does the vote win that's in the best interest of the entire network? And have you guys noticed that tends to be the case? I mean, I would imagine 100% of all votes that have passed have been in favor of making a better network, yes? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that it's been really effective at rooting out scams, people that are proposing things that, you know, one was a call center that supposedly exists that said, hey, we, we want to spin up a Dash support center for users to be able to call into. And it turned out the company didn't exist. The people didn't exist. Some, you know, somebody did the research and figured out this company was not legitimate. And, and you know, it got voted down. It's very effective at rooting out outright fraud. There's also uh, proposals that are well-intentioned you know, from well-established community members um, who fail, right? I mm. Like, we can't expect every effort to be successful that uh, the network funds. But the good news there is, hey, we experiment. Some things are successful. Some things fail. And the ones that fail, funding gets cut off for in, in subsequent periods. And the things that are successful continue to get funded it allows for that level of experimentation without putting huge amounts of capital at risk because it's on a monthly cycle. Every month you have to justify your cost to the network if you're going to continue to operate as an, as an entity. And so it's really effective at steering the resources towards projects that add value to the network, especially over periods of time. Has everything we've ever done been, you know, turned out really successfully? No. You know, we've had some things that have caused reputational damage or something. But, you know, everyone's is voting based on the information they have at the time. And they don't always get it right, but they get it right over long periods of time when we learn what's effective and we learn what is ineffective use of resources. And so I, I think that uh, the answer is, it does seem like almost everyone in the system is well-intentioned. They're voting towards their own best interest and mistakes are made, but ultimately over time we get better and better at it as a community. And so I, I think you can't be afraid of all types of failure. You have to be willing to allow for failure in your network and you know, a lot of people wanted to put in place things like, hey, we'll only pay you if you meet certain milestones. We'll only pay you if, you know, and, and really overcomplicate the, the governance system such that we're micromanaging the tasks that they're doing and approving of every single output. And I think that's going overboard. First of all, nobody has time to micromanage individual decisions within a bunch of different organizations serving the network. And even if we did, that just discourages people from taking on those projects in the first place. If I know I'm only getting paid if 
a risky endeavor that I'm going to pursue actually pans out the way that I hope that it will, I'm not going to put a proposal up to the network in the first place because, you know, I, I, I'm not going to take that risk on myself as a contributor. And so I, I think that you just have to allow people to fail. Just make sure that you have the mechanism to cut off the funding if it doesn't look like it's going in the right direction. And so I, I think that there's a, a strong tendency in these communities, especially developer-oriented communities, to try to engineer solutions to risk and human failure and, you know, leadership and, and these types of things you can't engineer. And so I think that you, you have to allow a great deal of flex, great deal more flexibility in your system than you're probably comfortable with to allow things to fail. It's important that things fail because if you aren't failing at anything, you aren't taking enough risks and you aren't taking enough calculated risks about the future. Also, another thing to mention um, around that is that sometimes it's not failure. It's that people in the network don't always agree on things or have the same priorities. Maybe certain people in the network want to prioritize work around this feature or this uh, geographical area. Meanwhile, others believe in different things. So at some point, maybe something is being funded and maybe they were even executing well, but a bigger percentage of the network decides that that's not a priority right now. So maybe they will pull out the funding, even if the execution was going well, because in the end, it's not just execution. You, you, you need to be working on the right things. And because a network is something, a network like Dash is uh, pretty big and decentralized. There are all types of individuals and organizations uh, taking part in this game. And we don't always agree about things. And that's fine. In the end, by participating in the system, you agree that majority rules, majority of votes which is masternode, which is coins, more or less, with some nuance. But um, you agree to that rule, to those rules, and okay, if, if network don't agree with what you are doing, even if you are doing um, what you think is right, you'll have to um, change. It's success and failure is not so black and white sometimes. It's a great point. I think both of you made great points. That whole idea of micromanaging and maybe just letting the budget fly for certain proposals and letting uh, giving people the opportunity to work and not necessarily feel like every single step in the process is monitored or they have to create some sort of report for that. I think it increases the chances of success. It frees up time from the actual community member that's actually submitting that proposal because success is not linear and sometimes you run into roadblocks and you have to deviate and go a different route. But, uh, you know, milestones are important, but having extremely tedious milestones that hinders the success of the project could be uh, a downfall. I wanted to quickly switch gears. Speaking about proposals, I wanted to get your advice or your feedback on successful proposals within Dash, Rick and I actually are starting a gauntlet series where we're testing some of the proposals that people are submitting 
to Cardano. So people are going to go on the Cardano effect and they're going to pitch us their proposals. And it's a good medium for ideas to get out to the broader community. So you've been doing this for years. What are the some of the successful proposals that you've seen? What are some of the successful ideas that you've seen? And is there any advice you can give as far as that? Yeah, um, you know, having submitted our own proposals for years and you know, we've we've had Dashcore Group uh, enjoys a great deal of support from the network. I like to think that that level of support was earned over a long period of time of of doing what we say we're going to do and and um, being professional and and all of those things. But even we've had you know a number of our proposals get voted at voted down, and. There's obviously a wide range of, of quality of proposals that we see come forward as well. And I'd say over the years, the things that I've taken away on what, and, and the advice that I give proposal owners within the Dash community is number one, it really helps to do something for your community first before coming asking for money. Even if it's just, you know, a, a donation of your time for a period of time, accomplishing something, and then showing that to the community to show that you're well-intentioned, that you're capable of accomplishing something, do that first before coming and asking for funds in order to do something for the, for the network. Um, that helps a great deal because it builds trust. It shows that you have a, a real interest in the coin, not just in you know, making money off of an opportunity. I'd say the second thing that people, that successful proposals have in common, they have a tendency to focus on the value that they're going to create. They, they clearly delineate very early on in the proposal text, hey, here's what I'm going to do and here's how it's valuable. Oftentimes, that the, the value part comes way at the end or it isn't even mentioned at all and they assume that you're going to be able to read it and understand what the value is. That isn't always the case. A lot of people have different perspectives on what the network should be doing. And so you have to articulate why you think that this is valuable activity for the network. I'd say a third thing is that follow-up especially if you're planning on coming back to the network, follow up with a periodic update. Early on, that can be every single week or every month. Um, if you get more established like Dash Core Group, we put together a more formal presentation to the community on a quarterly basis. It's usually an hour to two hour long uh, hosted call. They can ask questions. I'd say it's also really important to make sure that the voting on your proposal gets off to a good start. This is something that is not intuitive, but when people see a bunch of other yes votes, their tendency is to give less scrutiny to that proposal. And if it looks good, they scan it, everyone else is voting yes, this one seems to make sense, and they'll vote yes for your proposal. If early on you garner a bunch of no votes, well, that's a reason for me as a voter to really dig into this one because there's a bunch of no votes here. Now I'm scrutinizing. Now I'm looking for why other people are voting no. And so it just changes the subsequent votes. So it's really important when you first launch your proposal 
to be responding to questions and comments and clarifying anything that people are misconstruing about your proposal. And so when you first post it, don't post it at 11 p.m. and go to bed because somewhere in the world it's daylight and people are commenting on and voting and you aren't there to manage any of that. Post your proposal in the morning, in your morning, so that you can respond to those things, that you can clarify. And if there's an issue with your proposal, you can say, no, 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 that isn't what I meant. I, I, you know, here's, here's some of the things. Or, oh, no, this isn't a scam, this evidence that you found. You're looking at the wrong company. Here's my company. And here's where it's registered. So it, you know, be mindful of the fact that you need to get this thing off to a good start or it's going to cut, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. And so those are some of the lessons that I've learned and I've seen, you know, projects go wrong on in the past. So Fernando, I don't know if there are others that you, you notice that good proposals yeah. really handle well. I'd say that most projects that have been around for a while, um, there is one common trait among the people that manage them, and it's some flexibility and also check your ego out. Because working publicly, you are going to receive a lot of comments and criticisms, and many times those are right. So you need to be able to recognize that correct course, change things in the proposals, because you not many times you don't have all the answers. So it's important that you are prepared for that um, and assume that you don't have everything in mind when you write that proposal. So maybe people will realize that things are wrong and you just need to correct. And you can't take that personally. You need to be able, able and willing and even enjoying the discussion with the community because more often than, than not, they may be right. So, um, yeah, that kind of personality. And anonymous posters. Anonymous yeah. posters on the internet aren't always necessarily the most uh, genteel uh, <laughs> mindset. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes, they, uh, they may come at you pretty harshly. I, I'd say one more thing that is optional. Consider being, I mean, you, a lot of people in our network are anonymous. They don't reveal who their real world identity is. They nonetheless have proposals that are successful because they've delivered over a long period of time. It does help with trust to be able to say, here's my name and here's my identity in the real world. That isn't for everybody uh, and it isn't always necessary, but it does help garner trust. And it is a consideration that you should keep in mind as to whether or not you want to reveal your world, real world identity with your proposal. I've been explaining that for a long time is, is anonymity. Pe people want to know who am I talking to? Who is this person? Who are we paying? Right? So if you have a team of two or three people, maybe if at least one person is known and the other people can enjoy the anonymity, that's fine as well. And uh, yeah. Philippe and I fully understand your feedback when we first uh, about feedback and check your ego out. When we first started this podcast, we got a lot of feedback. We still get a lot of feedback, but uh yeah, we, we got some feedback that was not so uh, – you got to take it with a grain of salt and learn from it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All feedback is good feedback. You know, Sometimes you do got to check your ego out and say, okay, what are they saying? All right? And how can we improve? 
Yeah, when it escalates to threats, that's when it's no longer good feedback. (laughs) I could see that happening too. (laughs) I don't think we've had that yet. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I want to know exactly what does the process of voting look like as far as the UI UX experience for masternodes? Is it important for it to be sort of this turnkey sort of iPhone type experience or is it more like, is it more bare bones and they have to rely on command scripts and, and a command line interface? And is it, is it important for it to look pretty or is it more bare bones is basically what I'm asking for the masternode operators. Well, it's we've we've gone through some some iterations with it. We started with command line interfaces in the core wallet, and you would literally have to copy and paste, you know, a long cryptographic string into a command line and broadcast that to the network, and it functioned fine. I mean. Masternodes were easily able to copy and paste that into the command line. And at the end, there was a yes or a no. And you would change it to either say yes or no. And so it was a relatively simple process, even if it wasn't beautiful. So I think it's important that it be simple. It also allowed you to vote all of your masternodes at once. So if you were a multiple masternode owner, you didn't have to enter that command each time that would have been tedious. So I would say it's important to make it quick. It's not important to make it beautiful, to have it be effective. Since then, a number of websites have launched, uh, namely dashnexus.org and dashcentral.org, both of which you can you know, hit a button and have your votes cast. And Dash Central will even stagger your votes so that people can't see a wave of votes all coming in at once and investigate, you know, what those masternodes are and they're all owned by the same person and so on. So it provides some privacy tools. And so those are very popular. We also have a developer who built Dash Masternode tool. It's DMT and it's an application for your desktop. Um, that also has voting capabilities in it, and you can just click and and vote uh, on each proposal. And so we 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 now have a number of user interfaces that are much more GUI-like, and uh, they're very popular. They haven't really had an effect on voter participation or anything, but people like to use them, and they they do offer a better user experience. So I I think. There aren't a lot of these people, though, right? Out of 5,000 masternodes, we might have 1,000 masternode owners, give or take, probably a little more than that, probably about 1,200 masternode owners. And so it's hard to justify investing in iPhone apps and you know a bunch of different options for them to vote. If you have a larger voter base, it might make sense. Uh, to do that. And so I think for us, it's a little unique. Operating a masternode is a highly technical endeavor to begin with. A lot of people outsource the the operation of their masternode to a, a hosting service, for example. So for us, you know, 
investing in user interface tools was not the highest priority item. We still do make tweaks to it and, and we're mindful of opportunities to make it easier or make it more intuitive. And there are minor improvements that we make to it over time. But, you know, as far as where we spend the majority of our time, it's not in, in making these tools beautiful. Okay. I think the real entry barrier for voters is not the act of voting, but the act of getting informed, reading the proposals, considering them. That's what it's really the barrier. That's what prevents people from voting, not knowing. Because also our system is pretty open. The proposal can be whatever you want. And a lot of people make very long proposals. So if I can't get the value of your proposal very fast, I will tend to abstain because I don't want to hurt you because maybe you are great, but I don't want you to, I don't want to give you the money if I'm not certain. So also proposals that are simple, well explained, tend to have a higher participation. So um, that's also um, a take to have is be concise. And that part of the system is in my opinion, more important than how you execute the vote. Thank you. This is incredibly good insight, and I very much appreciate it. And along that lines, Fernando, I was curious about what types of proposals have you seen the greatest amount of voter participation, and where have you seen participation taper off? Like, is there some proposals that got people really excited and, you know, everyone jumped on it and pushed forward? And is there any of them when it was like, eh, I don't know about that. If, what, what kind of uh, proposals have you seen that were really exciting and had a lot of support? Usually what, I mean, cryptocurrencies still a very technical field. So most proposals that are development related used to do better than others, especially if, it, if they come from well-known uh, proposal owners. Uh, those tend to do very well. People vote fast vote and vote yes. Also, other times we see that when the proposal no owner is very well known in the community and trusted, even if the topic is not very typical, people will trust people. So reputation goes a very long way. We've, uh, we see proposals that are very similar from different people and one will do great and the other won't because reputation. So yeah, Technical development proposals tend to do better. Also, others that are um, done by uh, well-known people in the community, also well-known people in the space. We've had a couple proposals from people outside the DAS community, but that well, very well-known and probably were approved without enough due diligence, and then we had problems uh, with those proposals because they didn't deliver. But because they were endorsed by a very well-known face, then that passed. In terms of other things, uh, well, another area where we've had a lot of proposals passed is promotion, marketing, that kind of, uh, that part that is not technical. Those then used to pass more when there was a bigger budget, because since it's a percentage of the new coins created, obviously the price affects total money that it's available. So uh, when the prices were higher in, in crypto, there were more money and people tended to fund uh, more of those proposals that were about promoting Dash. And also because there's a lower entry barrier to make one of those proposals. You can be 
very local and you can create some events or do some promotions locally. And that almost anyone can do. Meanwhile, developing a new feature is something more complex that not everyone will be able to do. That's why also those proposals carry more enthusiasts from the community. Interesting, interesting. Speaking about the the marketing proposals, I think it was back in 2017. I was on a, I think a United Airlines flight, and in my in-flight entertainment, I saw a dash a dash commercial. I was I was shocked. I was shocked. It was a little animation. I remember it vividly because this was this was then things were getting really hyped in 2017, and I saw it in my in-flight entertainment. I thought it was pretty cool. So I don't know. Who yeah, did that that, that was driven by a community member, uh, and it's amazing. We still get this comment frequently from people saying, "I remember the airline ads." Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it really is amazing how often this comes up three years later. Yeah. That people really remember that it stood out to them, and um, yeah, that was a, a, a community idea, and and it seems like it was it was pretty effective uh, yeah. as far as at, at least as far as people remembering. Oh, definitely, definitely, it was very unique, very unique. So kudos to your team, and kudos to whoever set that up. So <laughs> I want to shift now, maybe to the future of Dash governance. You've been doing this for a long time. How does the Dash governance model evolve over time? Where are you looking to, to go? Where is this project headed? Well, uh, w- over the course of the last year, we've really raised a number of governance and treasury-related issues. One thing that we struggled with is, is during that 2017-2018 time period, there isn't a lot of incentive for the masternodes not to use the entire budget. And so uh, the tendency was to approve even dubious proposals that had very low value. Uh, We were doing celebrity sponsorships and there was all kinds of crazy stuff that was was getting approved that had no lasting impact on the project. And, you know, frankly, some of them were a complete waste of funds. And so we recognize that we need to put in place some incentives for the masternodes to be judicious when the price of Dash is high. Conversely, when the price of Dash is low, you know, December of last year, the price briefly dropped below $40. And when it dropped like that, the drop was temporary, but the effect was that the amount of Dash that people needed to request to fund their teams increased. And it squeezed out a number of valuable teams that likely the masternodes would have liked to have fund, even if it meant a reduction in their own rewards in order to keep those teams going. And so there is a need for greater flexibility in the way that our proposal system works. We need to be able to approve a larger budget if necessary, or if a large one-time opportunity comes along. But in order to increase the size of the budget, we need to make sure that if the price of Dash increases, that we, we don't have this issue of, of low-value proposals getting approved. And so what we've done is we've put forward, and we're going to vote on this very shortly, an idea to make that more effective in two ways. One, we're going to increase the max budget size from 10% of the block reward to 20%. But 
we're also going to introduce financial incentives to keep that proposal size small or keep the approved proposals to those that are adding value. When a new proposal is funded, it would have the effect of lowering the master node rewards for the following month. Um, in other words, the unused portion of the budget is then allocated out towards miners and master nodes. And so by creating that incentive, it really means that the master nodes are unlikely to then start approving anything that might add any value at all. It's got to add substantial value if we're going to be allocating funds towards it. Um, and I it think would... it's important that you mention there that in our current system, when the budget is not allocated, those coins don't get created. So they reduce the, the total supply, but that's a very and that's good for every coin holder because their coins are more valuable. But it's a long term thing, and people don't really uh, see that as va immediate value. Meanwhile with the system that Ryan is explaining, it, there are no coins that are not created. They either go to the proposal or to the masternode. That's right. And so this, we hope, creates a, a healthier ecosystem, both by providing that flex, greater flexibility to increase or decrease the scale of the treasury system, but at the same time, making sure that we're we're creating incentives to, to make sure that the masternodes are not, you know, just approving anything if the budget becomes large. And so that's one set of changes that, that we're introducing. We're also considering how we can, we, we've seen a reduction in voter participation over the years. It's still healthy enough where it's quite easy to get a, a good proposal above the line and, and get it funded. But there's a couple causes of that. One is we've seen the introduction of shared masternodes. So many people coming together and many of those don't simply don't vote. And so with a, with a number of those services that have come online, it does make it more difficult to reach the 10% threshold when a lower percentage of your masternodes are actually voting. The second issue is that a lot of exchanges have started operating masternodes. They have staking services or something that they've spun up and, and depositors can then put their funds into an exchange and the exchange is essentially operating shared masternodes. Uh, that's another situation where they're unlikely to vote. And so we, we've seen a number of these types of services crop up and what happens when your voter participation drops is it get, makes it harder and harder to reach that hard 10% threshold that we have in place. And so it's getting more difficult to get a proposal passed over long periods of time now. So we're considering options for having that threshold change based on the previous period's voter participation, so that if voter participation does change over time, that threshold changes with it. And so we're considering options for changing how the system actually works in order to address some of these things that we've seen emerge over, over time. And the good news is we have a mechanism for agreeing as a network on what those changes are, and it's our proposal system. We also use it for decision proposals. 
So when we want to make a change to the network's protocol, we put that through a governance proposal. And it's a simple yes, no vote. Okay. That's good to hear because that's something I first started, I had to read up on Cardano in the last couple of weeks as information on Catalyst came out. My initial questions were, what are the thresholds? What if you need to change a threshold, right? And uh, the, the initial ones I read is the Cardano thresholds are the yeses have to outweigh the noes by 15%. So no matter how much stake is voted with. Oh, and there's a minimum stake too. There's like a minimum stake of 8,000 ADA to initiate, to initiate a vote. And you can vote with higher amounts of ADA. But um, for the yeses to win, it has to exceed the noes by 15% for it to be valid. I did not see a minimum threshold. I don't recall seeing it, but that is something I, I do want to look up. Is Did you ever run into problems with in, like in Dash? Is there any minimum thresholds that have never been met to where you say, okay, this vote is invalid? Like, is there anything that invalidates a vote? Yeah, so when we say that you have to have a... a uh, meet the minimum threshold, what that means is if, if we do have 5,000 masternodes, that means that the minimum number of yes votes minus no votes in order to qualify is 10% or 500. So you need 500 more yes votes than no votes in order for a vote to be valid. If you don't reach that threshold, even if there's room left in the budget and there are more yes votes than no votes, even if the proportion of those votes is quite high, uh, you know, you've got 100 yes votes and one no vote, it doesn't matter. You, you have to hit that threshold and you would be ineligible for, you know, constituting a proposal that, that passes in, in the budget. The reason for that is because we want to protect against one large holder coming in and ramming a proposal through at the last minute. If we didn't have that threshold in place, a proposal owner or a, a large masternode owner could potentially wait until the 11th hour, submit their proposal with 30 minutes left to go in the voting cycle, vote yes on it themselves, and have a really high number of yes votes more than no votes, and the thing pays. By having a threshold, you have to put your proposal up early. It forces you to lobby other masternode owners to be able to vote for your proposal. And no one person or even group of large masternode owners could ram a proposal through at the last minute without exposing it to no votes. You have to give the opportunity for the network to consume and to you know, vote no on, on these proposals. And the threshold is how we accomplish that. The threshold was there since day one. It was always 10%, and it, it's, it's never changed. It's been very effective at that level. Good That's a good lesson learned from experience as well. Thank you for that. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, Philippe, we're approaching the top of the hour. Is there anything else we wanted to hit on before we wrap up here? I think I hit on all the questions I had. I wanted to open up the floor to Ryan and Fernando. Is there anything that you wanted to talk to before we wrap this thing up to the listeners and viewers of the Cardano effect? Anything that you wanted to talk about Dash or anything that's going on in cryptocurrency, whatever the case may be, I'll, I'll give you some, some space. Well, I'd just like to 
maybe share a, a interesting little tidbit that maybe people aren't aware of. Very early on in our proposal system, Charles Hoskinson took a real interest in what we were doing. He actually gave a talk at one point where he described a system that was almost a direct description of what we had. And he, he, he wasn't aware that this existed. And so some of our community members reached out to him and said, hey, this, this actually exists and, and here's how it works with Dash. And he became very interested in it. You know, IOHK, his, his research group, wrote a research report on governance and, and as Fernando mentioned very early on, really highlighted Dash in that and, and offered a lot of constructive criticism he was spot on 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 a good deal of it and and some of the issues uh, that we were likely to face and and we incorporated a lot of it there were there were other things we disagreed with and and experience were were telling us weren't real issues so you know we 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 took that information in and and uh, so there there's there's kind of an indirect connection between Cardano and and Dash that goes back quite a ways, uh, all the way back to 2015, 2016 time period. And I, I think that as a result, there's likely to be a lot in common with the way that these things work by the time uh, they get implemented, I'm sure. And just to let the listeners know, the paper, I looked it up on the IOHK research portal. It's called The Treasury System for Cryptocurrencies, Enabling Better Collaborative Intelligence. It was published in January 2019. So you can go check that paper out, what Ryan was referring to about what IOHK did as far as researching and writing a paper about the Dash governance model. Sorry about that. I just had to interject. Fernando, the floor is yours. Yeah, I would. Yes, like to uh, invite everyone uh, watching, listening, whatever, to um, stop by. Um, if you go to das.org, you can see all the social media outlets that uh, Das has some presence on, which is I mean, all of them, and discuss with us if if governance is topic of your interest. We've we have a lot of experience of as as we've discussed today and we love talking about it and also there is no reason why people need to be like just about one cryptocurrency project i don't think our blockchains uh, directly compete in many things does his focus on payments and now we have some exciting updates coming on but um coming up but um yeah Check us out uh, there's a lot of things to discuss and i know there are some community members that are Active in both projects because I've I've seen it in Twitter several times. Yeah, I just like to extend an invitation to everyone watching or listening to stop by. I would echo that if if you go to two websites, dash.org and then probably dash central, dashcentral.org, you can actually see governance in action. And you can go in, view the proposals, and actually see all the comments in there. And you can see kind of how it works in practice. I think that that's a good exercise for anybody that's interested in the governance aspect. Okay. So we'll drop those links. We'll definitely drop those links in the description. Fernando, Ryan, I want to thank you for your time. We appreciate you coming on the Cardano Effect podcast. Um, you are always welcome. I think this was a great informative session. Rick, did you learn a lot? I learned a lot. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Fernando. And thank you, Ryan, so much for coming on the podcast. I learned immensely. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You.
Fernando Gutierrez, he is the CMO of Dashcore Group, and Ryan Taylor, he is the CEO of Dashcore Group. Until the next episode of the Cardano Effect podcast, bye everyone. <laughs>